This morning we are continuing our study in the book of Exodus. We'll be looking at Exodus chapter 30 starting in verse 11 and continuing through the end of chapter 31. So Exodus 30, 11, uh, through the end of chapter 31. In all the chapters we've looked at in Exodus over the past few weeks, chapters 25 through 30, you probably noticed that the dominant idea that God was revealing to us about himself was that he is holy. So holy, in fact, that in order for unholy people to be in his presence, careful, deliberate, exact measures must be taken. So you might think that there's not much more we could say about his holiness or our unholiness. Oh, but there is. In the kitchen in my house, we have a drawer we call the junk drawer. If you don't have one, what a junk drawer is, is a place for odds and ends. Batteries, pens, twist ties, uh, rubber bands, uh, little plastic things that I'm not sure what they are, but I'm afraid to throw them away. You know, a junk drawer. It's stuff that you're pretty sure you need, but you don't really have another place to put them. Well, as you look, take a quick scan of the passage we're looking at today, it might seem a little bit like a junk drawer. Uh, look at the paragraphs in, our, in, our, in your Bible. The census tax, the bronze basin, the anointing oil and incense, Ahaliab and Bezalel, and finally the Sabbath. It might seem like Moses has just thrown together a few unrelated topics at the end because he didn't have a better place to put them. Sort of a junk drawer of instructions from God tacked on to the end. Well, in fact, these paragraphs are far from random and unrelated. And they are, as with all of Scripture, exactly where God placed them, where they should be. In this case, they are the climax of God's instructions for his people, beginning in chapter 25, ending in chapter 31, about how they can enter into his presence. In this passage, God addresses the question, by what means will it be possible for the people to approach God? Now that they've been consecrated and God is providing a place for them to meet, could the priests now, as they represent God's people, just come to God any way they chose? No, not at all. The paragraphs we're about to look at all relate to the means by which God's people may properly approach him. Because God is holy, how we approach matters. So God in his mercy grants his people some very specific ways of approach. In other words, because he loves his people and wants to be with them, God prescribes the means by which his people may approach him. By prescribe, I mean that God provided in advance directions for methods of approaching him that were pleasing to him and acceptable to him. You see, he decides how we approach. We don't. The first of these means we'll find in, in Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16. 
And that is that God's people approach him, first of all, through personal commitment. Let's read verses 11 through 13 of chapter 30. Would you read that with me? The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. This seems odd to us. What does the census have to do with approaching God? Well, before the priests could do their work at the tabernacle, there had to be a congregation on whose behalf they acted. On exactly who were the priests to represent as God's people. According to this passage we just read, only those who willingly, individually, paid this half shekel of silver so that they could be counted as part of the covenant people of Yahweh. The phrase that we read in verse 13, translated, each one who is numbered, reads in Hebrew more like, each one who crosses over to those already counted. The picture is of uh, on a group of people on the one side, the uncounted, who approach one by one to pay the ransom to cross over to the counted. The people entered the spiritual blessings of worship at the tabernacle as individuals, not as a group. Once they had been counted, though, then they were considered part of the congregation, represented as a whole by the priests. Only then would the priests approach God on behalf of the congregation in the special ways that God ordained for them, which we'll get to in a moment. Notice the word used in verse 12, the words used in verse 12. When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. It seems that we are to understand the taking of a census as a dangerous thing to do. Why, why would that be? Well, to count something was to consider it as belonging to you. The temptation by leaders to count people as theirs, to put their trust in numbers, to become preoccupied with how many are we, how many belong to us, was strong and dangerous. The people belonged to Yahweh, not to Moses. Even to allow yourself to be counted was dangerous. And so Moses was told to instruct each Israelite to pay a ransom for his life, as if his life were in danger. God says this payment is a ransom, not a tax. Each person, as they paid this ransom, they understood that they were symbolically buying back their own life which rightly belongs to God. In verse 16, God describes this ransom as atonement money. Look at verse 16. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of meeting. 
that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for their lives. The ransom atoned for each individual's sin and brought him now corporately as a member of God's people into remembrance before the Lord. Remembrance of the covenant he made with not individuals but with a people. For those of us who have crossed over into the body of Christ, his church, his new covenant people, this concept should sound familiar. The pattern laid down here in Exodus by which individuals respond to God in order to become his people corporately points forward to a greater reality to come. For Christians, Jesus paid the ransom, the perfect ransom, so that he paid his life for my own life so that he might transform me into an individual dead in my sin to part of the body of Christ. Titus 2.14 tells us, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us or ransom us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own, for his own possession. So the first step in approaching God is that one must be ransomed. Christians are simply sinners who have responded individually to God's call to repentance and faith and accepted the ransom already paid for us. If you're not a follower of Christ this morning, you cannot enter into the presence of God without taking this first step. Jesus is your only hope. He himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus gave himself as the ransom for your life. But you must personally respond to his call and receive it. You must cross over by repenting, believing, and following Jesus. God has graciously provided you a means by which you can approach him. You can do that today. Talk to someone around you in the room. Most of the people in the room would love to help you take that next step of faith. Well, once, once an individual Israelite had crossed over to become part of the covenant people, at that point, the priests then mediated for them as a whole. And so now we see in this passage, the, the priests are given specific means for approaching God. Why should the, the ways that priests approach God at the tabernacle concern us? Because the New Testament tells us that as believers, as Christians, we are priests as well. Once we've been ransomed, we not only become part of the body of, God, of, of Christ, we become priests. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You, Christians, are a chosen race, a, holy, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So the priestly means of approaching God, we find in Exodus, foreshadow the Christian's means of approach. Look first at Exodus 30, verses 17 through 20. 
The Lord said to Moses, you shall make, also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and, the son, and his sons, priests, shall wash their hands and feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. For Israel's priests, this regular washing with water was a necessary means of approaching God. Unlike the consecration ceremony that we read about in chapter 29, which only happened for a priest one time, this washing of water described here happens continually every day, multiple times a day, when you go into the tent, when you approach the altar, when you burn a sacrifice, over and over and over, they are renewing themselves. They are washing again. The priests had already been redeemed. They'd already been consecrated. But still, they needed to be constantly refreshed in holiness because they were by nature unclean. Every time they washed their hands and feet, they were meant to be reminded that sin remained in them and that they had this ongoing need for repentance and forgiveness, a need for God's continuing grace if they were to approach his presence. The basin was between the altar and the tent, always easily accessible for them. Did this water magically make them holy? No. It's just water. The, this washing was a graphic portrayal for them of the spiritual reality. That is that God was cleansing them every time they returned to him again and again, recognizing their need and their uncleanness before him. So he has ordained this means for them to acknowledge that they need cleaning and that he does that for them. So what does the basin mean for us as believers? I don't see one out in the, the lobby. Even though we have been redeemed and we are in Christ, we still, too, need daily cleaning, constant renewal and holiness. And God still, in his mercy, provides us with means. Once we're ransomed, we, uh, for, for, for Christians, our daily cleansing is not with water, but it comes by confession and repentance of sin. Look at what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we, those who are already in Christ, confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amazing. We also find another means of washing that God has prescribed for us in Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 26. There it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why does the New Testament compare God's word and confession of sin to this washing of water? Because 
just like the priests of old needed to be washed constantly, so we need confession of sin and exposure to God's cleansing word daily, constantly. So confession of sin and repentance are a means of approaching God. And hearing, understanding, and responding to God's word is also a means of approaching God that he has prescribed for us. These are the water that God has given us for our regular cleansing. Always easily accessible, just like the basin was for the priests. In his mercy, God prescribes the means by which his people may approach him. Well, there was another element of sanctification for priests, and that is anointing oil. We find instructions concerning the production and use of this oil in Exodus 30, 22-33. In verses 23 and 24, we see that God gave Moses an exact and detailed recipe for making this anointing oil so that it would be an, the only oil that God would deem acceptable and holy. The specific ingredients mattered because not just any old oil would do. It had to be God's recipe, his means of approach. Let's read verse 25. And you shall make of these, the ingredients mentioned in verses 23 and 24, you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be holy, a holy anointing oil. Well, what are they supposed to do with this oil? What was to be anointed with this sacred oil and why? Well, in verses 26 through 28, they tell us that everything associated with the tabernacle, the, the tent, the ark, the covenant, the table, the altar, the utensils, the bowls, everything created for use in God's presence was to be anointed with this oil. Verse 29 and 30 tell us further that the priests themselves were to be anointed with this oil. Was this oil magical? Could it somehow transfer common things into sacred things? No, not at all. The oil was a sign for them, a sign that the person or thing anointed had been approved and recognized by God as holy for his use. The oil marked a thing as belonging to him. It marked it as fit for use in his presence. It was also a sign that this person or thing was, had been enabled to perform its function, enabled by God's spirit, by God's holiness. God alone is holy. Only he can make a thing or a person holy. Being anointed was a means by which the priests could be recognized as fit to approach God. In what ways are God's people today marked as his? Fitted enabled, and enabled to fellowship with him and to do his work. Well, followers of Christ receive an anointing, not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. The anointing oil in Exodus points forward to a new and better anointing, a permanent one. 
The New Testament tells us in many places that those who are in Christ have received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, an anointing that gives us access to the Father through Christ and equips us at the same time to walk in righteousness, in his righteousness. The Holy Spirit enables holiness in us. First, I love the way 1 John 2, 27 says this. There John says, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, abide in him. Those who are in Christ may now approach God in an intimate way because we have received the anointing of the Spirit. We approach him with confidence because we have received the Spirit. Romans 8.15 says, you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons. What's more intimate than that? By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee for us that God has chosen us, that he is sanctifying us, and he is working to equip us for good works. Believers learn to rely on the Spirit's power. We are told to walk in the Spirit, allowing the Spirit to transform us into his righteousness, his holiness. And as the Spirit does that work in us, we draw nearer to God. Another means that the priests had in Exodus for approaching God was burning incense. Look at Exodus 30, verses 35 and 36. There he says, make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy to you, before you. Just as with the oil, Moses is given a specific, exclusive, and very expensive recipe for making a special incense that would be considered holy and acceptable to Yahweh. An incense that when burned produced an aroma that was pleasing to the Lord. This rising cloud of sweet-smelling smoke from the burning incense represented prayers rising towards God in heaven. The cloud of incense was a sensory illustration of the reality that prayers, of the prayers of God's people were reaching him even though they could not physically reach him. Prayer, an incredible way prescribed by God for us to approach him. So why would God choose the burning of incense as a symbol of prayer, this production of a sweet-smelling aroma? Why would that be a good symbol of prayer? Because our prayers, your prayers, are precious and pleasing to him. David understood this. He said in Psalm 141, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Revelation 8.3 describes 
the heavenly throne room of God and gives us this glimpse. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the Lord. Isn't that cool? Do you think of your prayers like that? As a fragrance pleasing to God? He does. Earlier in chapter 30, passage we didn't read this morning, Moses was told that Aaron was to burn this incense morning and night every day perpetually throughout all generations. Why? Because God wants us to persist in prayer, to pray habitually, to pray without ceasing, to delight him with, his, with our prayers. Your prayer is a sweet-smelling aroma to God and a means he has chosen for you to approach him. He loves it when you pray. In chapter 31, moving forward, God instructs Moses about two men he has chosen to be in charge of all the design and creation of all the things that have been described so far in the past six chapters. From the tabernacle to the priestly garments to the incense. How is that about approaching God? Well, this passage really describes service to Yahweh for the benefit of his people as a means of approaching him. Notice as we read chapter 31, verses 1 through 6, the emphasis of the text is not on just on who will create these things, but on how they will do it. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with the ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Ahaliab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded. <clears throat> well, the first thing we clearly see in this text is that all graphic designers must be filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Clear as day. No, that's not what that says. But this passage does teach us something about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. The filling described here, you'll notice, is an equipping. An equipping of God's people by God's Spirit to accomplish God's work. God didn't choose Bezalel or Aholiab because they were great at making stuff. He chose them so that he could make them great at, at making stuff. It's interesting that some people equate the filling of the Holy Spirit with ecstatic, emotional states, mystical experiences. But Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, most often describes the filling of the Holy Spirit as an enabling for a specific purpose. 
Often that purpose is not what we would say is particularly spiritual, like making goat's tents or bronze basins or grinding incense. These were ordinary acts supernaturally empowered by God's spirit. Bezalel and the others were filled temporarily with God's spirit to equip them to accomplish God's work for the benefit of God's people. So what does that mean for us as Christians who, in whom the Holy Spirit dwells permanently? How does that fact bear on the idea of being the, filled with the Spirit as an equipping for service? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, 5 through 7 tells us this. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each, each believer is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so the equipping of Bezalel and Ahaliab foreshadows the permanent equipping we receive in the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is working in you to equip you to, and enable you to serve his church. It's, it's, not, it's not optional, it is happening. Serving the body is a means of approaching God for you to draw near to him. Do you know why Allison or Nolan or Elizabeth or Hansley or I don't hesitate to ask you to serve? Because we know that God has made you a part of this body of believers in part so that you can serve the body, so that you can work out the enabling he is working in you. We also know that your faith will grow as you serve because serving is a means of approaching God. Praise God, we are a serving church. You have, for the most part, embraced this means of approach very well. Ordinary acts performed by God's people in the power of God's spirit to achieve God's work are a means of approaching God. Well, as soon as Moses finishes giving instructions about who's gonna be in charge of all this work. The next thing he God does is instruct Moses about reminding the people about the Sabbath. In verses 12 through 17 of chapter 31. Let's read 12, just, just verses 12 through 14. The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between you, you, me and you throughout all your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that shall, soul shall be cut off from among his people. Well, Moses had already received instructions about the Sabbath. Why bring it up here? I think there's at least two reasons this reminder of the Sabbath is appropriately placed at the end of all these instructions. First, Bezalel, Ahaliab, and their crew have a ton of work to do. How tempting it might have been for them to set aside the Sabbath and say, we're doing God's work. He's equipped us to do this work. It's important. Surely he doesn't, he'd rather us get this done than keep the Sabbath. 
God warns Moses here that the serv- serving the Lord, although an excellent means of approaching him, should never replace worship of God. We sometimes get so caught up in doing things for God that we stray from actually worshiping him. And God knows that's our hearts, that knows that, that we are prone to that, so he warns against it here. The second reason is, Worship is the final and climactic means God has prescribed that he has decided is a way for us to approach him. The fourth commandment about the Sabbath is not repeated in the New Testament and Colossians chapter two makes it clear that we need not obey the Sabbath regulations, but the purpose behind Sabbath is still important for us today. The Sabbath was always much more than just not working for a day. Look at verse 17 with me. It, the Sabbath, is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. God says that it's a sign, the Sabbath is a sign between Yahweh and his people a weekly reminder that he was sanctifying them as they worshiped. Verse 17 tells us that God rested and was refreshed. Does God need rest? Does he get tired? Does he need refreshing? No, God does not need anything. He does not ever need. So what's going on here? Why is God doing this? Well, God sets the pattern for his creation to follow because we need rest and refreshment. But we're not talking about the kind of rest and refreshment that the world thinks about. Not downtime, not me time, not entertainment or vacation. Those are worldly concepts, conceptions of rest. They may provide a measure of physical rest and relaxation, but they cannot provide spiritual rest. What what God is prescribing here is that through worship, we are meant to find rest in Him. When we're here on Sundays, that's what we're meant to do, to find rest in Him and His presence with us. As we approach Him in worship, we're meant to be renewed and refreshed spiritually. No vacation or day off can give you that because it is not a means for approaching God. Worship is. So in this passage from Exodus, we find that God prescribes the means by which his people may approach him and that the means that God gave Israel at the tabernacle point forward to the means that he's giving us now. Why does God give us such specific avenues for approaching him? Because he wants us to approach him. Isn't that an amazing idea? He wants you to come near to him. The Lord in his gracious abundance has given us these channels of approach to facilitate our coming near to him. He wants to be with us. Conversion 
ongoing confession and repentance, God's word, reliance on the Holy Spirit, prayer, serving, and worship are all means that he has chosen as means of sanctifying me so that I can draw nearer and nearer to him, so that I can see him just a little bit clearer all the time, so that I can know him a little better each time I approach. God wants to be known, and he wants to be known by you. As we draw closer to him, we also begin to delight in him. And he delights in us every time we approach him. The chief end of man, what you were created for, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so God gives you ways to do that. You can do precisely that. Glorify him and enjoy him forever by approaching him in the ways that he has prescribed for you. Brothers and sisters, let's take advantage of the means that God has given us. When you sin, and you will, confess and repent. God is eager to forgive and to draw you close to him again as you do that. Saturate your life in scripture. In God's word, there is power to transform you into the image of Christ and to purify you on an ongoing basis. Every time you hear, understand, and obey God's word, it brings you nearer to him. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Christian, the Spirit dwells in you. To walk in the Spirit is to walk with, in intimacy with God. Pray. According to Scripture, it is the surest way you have to please God and to enter into His presence. Serve. Enabled and equipped by the Spirit do spiritual good to your brothers and sisters in Christ. As you do, you will know Jesus better because his was a heart of serving. Worship. When we gather as a church, we are meant to find rest in him and find refreshment in his glory, his greatness, his goodness, his graciousness. Psalm 100 says, we enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. How merciful and loving it is that our God should grant us these means of approaching him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are amazed when we read your word and see how carefully and exactly you care for us and how you have gone to great lengths to teach us that you want to be near us, that you are holy and we are unholy, but that does not deter you from wanting to be in our presence. Lord, thank you for providing ways that we might approach you. We ask this and pray all this in Christ's name, amen.